Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the Theapologetics Podcast, Episode 12, Let's Get Physical. Today I'll be interviewing Dr. Glenn Peoples, creator of the Say Hello to My Little Friend podcast, to share with us his view of the human soul called physicalism. Now if you're familiar with this view, you might be wondering why I would be willing to entertain this view on my show. And as a matter of fact, this is the first time, and and probably what will be only one of a few, in which I ask a guest to share with us a view I don't personally hold. Well, let me use up my intro time to answer that question for you. First, I'm not a fan of so-called sacred cows. Jesus said God desires worshipers in spirit and in truth, and I think we displease God when we blindly adhere to traditional views without really examining them in light of the God-breathed words of Scripture. I believe this is the basis for most Christians' view of the human soul. It is merely what they're raised to believe in, and they never really examine it. That's my opinion anyway. So I asked Glenn to appear on my show to discuss his view because I personally don't want to do that. I want to give it the depth of thought that that I think any doctrine deserves. Second, I believe too many Christians are unjustifiably harsh and disrespectful towards those like Glenn who hold to this view. I think he's often mistreated and accused of false motives and separated from as if a heretic. And when I began to consider this view and actually adopt his understanding of certain passages, I likewise was treated in this way. I don't think this kind of treatment is warranted, and I want to show him the level of respect that I think God calls us to show. Finally, and this is perhaps purely selfish, Glenn recently appeared on the Unbelievable program with uh, Justin Brierley to debate his view. And whereas I had hoped for a very meaty, in-depth debate in which the biblical objections were addressed, it turned out to be a very introductory level um, discussion from which nothing I had not already heard arose. So I figured what better way to get to the depth of discussion I was hoping for than to invite Glenn to let me interview him on my show. Needless to say, I was very pleased and honored when he said he would love to. So if you think it's wrong of me to allow him to share his view on my podcast, I'm sorry that you feel the way that you do, and I hope I don't lose you as a listener. But like I said, I think we need to abandon our blind faith in sacred cows and instead critically examine them and make sure that what we accept from tradition is true. Now, I'd like to play a promo I played in episode 5. Hi, this is Phil Nasons from the blog and the podcast, What Color is the Sky in Their World? formerly known as the Theology Today blog and podcast. It's a blog and podcast dealing with and examining issues that affect each and every one of us from a Christian perspective. You can find us at phillyflash.wordpress.com or at theologytoday.podbean.com. Thanks a lot. Do check out Phil's blog and podcast. I think that he talks about very important issues. He's a very nice and respectful guy. Um, He's provided me comfort in times where I was experiencing pain. Um, I definitely recommend that you check his blog and podcast out. So with that, let's go ahead and move into the interview. I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Glenn Peoples of the Say Hello to My Little Friend podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today, Glenn. You're very welcome. 
Let me first say that uh, I think that the topic we're about to discuss is one that not only fascinates me personally, but is one that I don't think the church has really given careful consideration to. Um, still, I'm sure that you don't especially want to be known as sort of the poster child for physicalism, so I just want to say that I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk, uh, talk to us about your view. No problem. And I appreciate you saying that because although a couple of people have wanted me to speak about this issue, and I'm happy to do so because I just I kind of like it, it's not one that I regard to be my special expertise. It's just that for some people it's, it's, it's a bit of a curiosity that I am an evangelical who thinks this way. Sure. Yeah. Well, so I like to begin my interviews by asking guests to share their testimony with us. Um, what's your story? How did the Christian faith become uh, a meaningful part of your life, and how did you develop this interest in theology that you have? Right. I've always been exposed to God and to the Christian faith. I was raised in, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which, you know, depending on your views of religion, some people would think gives me a disadvantage. I, just, I disagree. <laughs> I mean, uh, for better or worse, I mean, not for better, but uh, whether some people think this is what I should have expected or not, it was in the Catholic Church that I was exposed to the idea that God loves me, that God will forgive me, that, you know, that God exists, that God raised Jesus from the dead and so on. You know, the, the most important truths that I hold now I learned when I was a young child in the Catholic Church. Sure. Um, when I was 12, 13, mostly it happened when I was 13, but when I was still you know, young, I began to think about theology. Uh, in particular, I began to think about what I believed as a young Christian. And I decided that I didn't believe some of it, <laughs> that I, mm. you know, some of the stuff that the church was teaching me I wasn't happy with. Um, but I, you know, I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I knew the problem wasn't God. I just thought that some of the some of the, the truths about God were not what I was being taught. Hmm. Now that was that was arrogant of me. I was ignorant. Um, however, through through providence or like call it what you will, I still think that those criticisms I had at the time were good ones. Sure. <laughs> and and so when I was uh, in my very early teens, I um, became my parents' worst nightmare as I. As I told Justin Briley recently, and I became a Protestant, huh. and I, I've, I've been there ever since. I wouldn't say that was really the beginning of my intellectual pilgrimage. I really started becoming more of a what I would call a theologian or someone really interested in serious theology when I was about nineteen or twenty, um, and that was after I'd left home. Instead of, I guess, sociologically, that's what you'd expect. You know, I wanted to find my place in the world. What was I? What did I believe? And so on. But I guess the short answer is I would say that there is no point when I stopped being a non-believer and started being a believer. Hmm. You really were a believer from the beginning. It's just your the intellectual depth um, grew over time. Yeah, yeah. I would I would say that's probably a fair way to put it. I see. Well, how about philosophy? Uh, what led to your interest in philosophy in general and, and and philosophy of the mind in particular? I'm an argumentative person. And, and that, you, you that's always, <laughs> yeah, that's always an asset when it comes, well, an asset or a burden, but it, it always, um, helps to have that particular trait, uh, if, if we're talking about philosophy, because that's what attracted me to it. You know, I like to hash things out and get to the bottom of things. When it comes to philosophy proper, what I would call academic philosophy, um, a friend of mine, uh, Matt Flanagan, actually, he runs the Eminem podcast, uh, blog with his wife, Madeline. Uh, we've been friends for a long time, and in the mid-90s, mid-late-90s, I was studying music uh, in Hamilton, New Zealand, and he was in the same city, that's where we met, and he was studying philosophy. He was doing his, his master's degree, and he was writing his thesis on Alvin Plantinger and his epistemology. Hmm. I didn't really know much about this at the time, but just because I knew I knew somebody who was studying Plantinger, I went down to the local library and got out Plantinger's book, God, Freedom, and Evil, and it just revolutionized the way I saw the, the ability to talk about Christian faith. It was like nothing 
that I'd ever seen before. And I think, to an extent, I mean, the writings of Alvin Plantinga still have that effect on me. He's not like anybody else. Hmm. And it, it just showed me that there was a completely new way to talk about Christian faith that absolutely related to the way that I think. And and that's really the start of it. It was then that I decided, look, I'm glad I've studied music, but I want to move on uh, to something more academic uh, when it comes to the exploration of my faith. So I went up uh, to Auckland and did uh, my divinity degree, then came down to where I am now in Dunedin and started studying. Uh, well, I did my master's in theology and then my PhD in philosophy. So, yeah, that's um, that was the trigger for me. And from then on, I said, I thought to myself, well, there's got to be more stuff like this out there. So I just started devouring more and more of it. Uh, and, well, the rest is history. Yeah, there you go. Well, how about the Beretta blog and podcast, other, like I said, otherwise known as Say Hello to My Little Friend? What, what's it all about and what prompted you to start it? The blog was just because, well, you know, here I am. When I started the blog, it was, when was it, back in 2006, I think. Gosh, it's been a long time. And you know, I was I was sort of nearing the end of my PhD research and thinking, you know, um, no one really knows who I am. And here I am. I'm about to, hopefully, if all goes well, as it fortunately did, become become PhD grad looking for, for a teaching post. And not just that, but I always want to be, to have some sort of outlet for my own thoughts anyway. And so I thought, well, why not just, you know, put a blog out there, uh, enable me to uh, invite friends and anyone who's interested to discuss these things with me. And then the podcast was suggested to me by a good friend of mine. In fact, a good friend of yours too, Dee Dee Warren. Right. Um, She'd started the podcast on preterism and said, "Yeah, you should you should do this too. You'd be good at that. It'd be great." And I was like, "Oh, yeah, what would I talk about? Who would be interested? You know, no one wants to hear me waffling on about philosophy of mind. And I think <laughs> I think I used philosophy of mind as an example of why I shouldn't do a podcast because who on earth would care?" Um, but in the end, I, I thought, "Yeah, that's probably not a bad idea." And not just that, but I have, I mean, the internet is. I forget the exact wording, but, you know, it was like when the old Jedi on Tatooine, um, you know, Alec Guinness, <laughs> Ben Kenobi, described the bar, the place they were going to, as the worst hive of scum and villainy. Oh, that's right. <laughs> the Internet is a bit like that when it comes to Christianity, because you see the very worst that Christianity has to offer on display. That's true. Um the worst ideas, the worst personalities, the worst... And you get to see some good stuff too, obviously, but I thought to myself, you know, there is so much out there that is a reflection of the worst that exists within Christianity. And, and you see the ugly side of things. You see the partisanship. You see the just the lack of charity and, and so on and so forth. And I thought, I want to be a voice that tells people that Christianity isn't like that. Mm. And also, also that confronts that kind of thing, that you know, actually challenges people to, to, to not be like that and to offer al- alternative ways of defending the things that are really important to me. And so that's why I started the podcast and it's actually really paid off. It's gone very well. You know, I, you know, I, sometimes I look back on an episode and go, man, that was a, that was terrible. I mean, the most recent episode that I've done, and I don't mind saying this was on, <laughs> oh, I can't even classical remember. Classical liberal, on, uh, classic liberalism, right? That's right. Classical liberalism and natural law. Now, I find that interesting, but the episode was the most dry, boring piece of <laughs> ac- academia that I've ever ever done in my life. But, you know, I don't mind saying that about myself. But overall, I think the podcast has gone really well, certainly in terms of, of the audience that it's reached is much wider than I ever thought I would. So I'm very pleased that, you know, Didi made the suggestion. 
Sure, it seems to have worked out well for you. And and you know, mm. I, I don't think that the, the episode was as was as bad as you think. I mean, I would agree. I, I found it less interesting than some previous episodes, but it wasn't as bad as you think. So don't. Well, that's be, very kind of you. <laughs> yeah, don't beat yourself up. Um, in in your recent appearance on the Unbelievable Radio program, you debated at a very introductory level. Uh, this position that you hold concerning the soul or spirit or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. and we're, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but explain for us, just sort of give a summary of what you consider to be the traditional view of the soul, um, to give a backdrop to the view that we're going to discuss that you hold. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, the traditional view depends on what tradition you associate with. I mean, there are several Christian traditions involved here. During the Enlightenment, uh, about the time of the Reformation, I guess, the dominant dualistic view in Protestant thought at least, was what is referred to as a Cartesian view, named for René Descartes, the philosopher. It's also called a Platonic view after Plato. And it, it certainly existed prior uh, to the time uh, of the Reformation, even prior to the, to the existence of the Christian faith. But it, it became associated with Descartes after he was born. Now, in, in this view, human beings are invisible and immaterial. We are these non-spatial souls or minds that are in some way associated with a piece of matter that we call a body, or, or you know, various pieces of matter organized into a body. Now, our bodies are unthinking, extended things, whereas we, you know, the soul, the mind, we are unextended thought. You know, so we have no extension in space. We're just, just immaterial thinking things. And we would exist with or without our body. We go on existing no less consciously after our body dies. Mm. As a view that, I think, anyway, has its origin in philosophy and not scripture. That's that's my position. That's pretty much why I'm on the show today. <laughs> there is no there's no tendency within that tradition to distinguish between the biblical idea of soul and spirit. Um, John Calvin is a classic example here. Just read through what he has to say about it, and it's still the Reformed view. I think if you look in the Westminster Confession, it's quite clear. Uh, there's this material part, and then there's you. So mm. there's these two bits uh, associated with this. Is a whole range of of other views, or of views of the human body. And there's a continuum within this. You know, at, at the most extreme view, there's a very ascetic tradition within the Christian faith where the physical body is intentionally mistreated and neglected in the service of the soul. Sure. Um, and in pre-Christian times, going back to Plato, he called the body the tomb of the soul. You know, this huh. horrible place that you don't want to be. And the soul would be emancipated, you know, set free when it left the body. Now, going back to Calvin, I think some of this is there as well, where, where he speaks very negatively about the body, and he practically identifies the body with the sinful flesh. Hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes people have spoken in, about the unhelpful passions that influence us as things that come from the body and not the soul. So there has been a tendency to degrade or speak poorly of the body when compared with the soul. Now, it's not all that way, in, in, especially in recent times. There has been an attempt to correct this to the point where some people have adopted the term holistic dualism. Now, I think that's about as sensible as talking about a vegetarian steak, but I know <laughs> what they're getting at. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to say, look, we're dualists, but we don't want to degrade the body like so many other dualists have. So that's a good thing. It's an improvement. Sure. Um, now, although the Platonic view is the view that naturally leaps to mind, for me at least, when the word dualism is used, there are other kinds of dualism, too, that have been pretty popular. Um, in more recent times, in evangelical or, interestingly, in, in Pentecostal circles, is this idea that we are not two parts, but three parts. You know, we're a body and a soul and a spirit. And oh, the trichotomy view, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's that's dualism of sort, because you've yeah. got matter and then you've got non-matter. Uh, but historically, the other major dualist point of view is, is what's called Thomism, the view of Thomas Aquinas. 
who got it from Aristotle, quite unashamedly. You know, if you if you know about the, the Catholic philosophical tradition, they are great admirers of Aristotle. Uh, I like to think of Plato and Aristotle as the fathers of Christian dualism. Mm. Um, in, in Thomism, the soul is the form of the body. It's not an extra substance, so it's not substance dualism. In fact, it's, it's quite a lot like physicalism. You've got physical matter, you know, the substance of our bodies, and then you've got the soul, the the information or the blueprint which is combined with that physical stuff, and it results in a human being. It's so it's the soul that distinguishes man from beings that have other forms. Um, and this is a question you asked me in preparation. I said no, I won't discuss that. Well, I will discuss it briefly. <laughs> the human the human soul is humanity, like a cookie cutter that is impressed upon the dough of matter to create individual human beings. Uh, and the same would be true, say, of cats. The cat's soul is catness, and you impose that upon matter, and you produce an individual cat. Huh. Uh, now, to be honest, I think there is some incoherency in, in Thomism. You know, Thomas talked about the survival of, of death. So you could survive death in a disembodied form. But I think when you do that, the whole Thomist view of the human person starts to break down. Well, it seems like nonsense in that if, if you view it that way. I think so, too. But to be perfectly <laughs> honest, I think that those who hold that view are just trying to, to combine incompatible things. They're trying to combine their philosophical view of humanity with the doctrinal teachings of their church about life after death. And now, they don't match, but the church teaches both things, so they've got to be true. Um, but those are the major dualistic views out there. Usually, I think of dualism as some kind of Cartesian view, because normally, I think, that's what someone who identifies as a dualist, is likely to believe. Now, there is emergentism, which is, in my view, not really dualism. Uh, William Hasker thinks it is dualism. I beg to differ. And that's the view where you've got the soul, which isn't material, but it's somehow produced by a material body, and it, it depends on the material body. But I think that kind of view is better accounted for with a physicalist view, uh, which is also emergentism, where you've got these emergent properties of the body rather than a different substance. But generally speaking, Cartesian or Platonic dualism is what you're going to be dealing with if someone says, hey, I'm a dualist. Hmm. Or and even if they don't claim that they're a dualist, I think most Christians I know anyway think of it in that way. They would say that we are comprised of both a physical body and an immaterial soul or spirit uh, that lives on after death um, until the resurrection. I mean, that just seems to be the dominant view, whether they call themselves a dualist or not. But how, how does this differ from your belief in physicalism? What, what do you think the Bible says about humans and souls? Uh, well, I don't think that the biblical writers were writing to satisfy philosophical curiosity, first of all. <laughs> sure. I don't think that, 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 that they intended to go into precise details about what we now call philosophy of mind. But in very basic terms, just to say, look, this is where I stand – the Bible teaches that we are physical beings. We don't have an extra substance that makes us us. Nothing that lives on without the body because there's nothing else but the body. And without the body, there's no us. There's nothing. So when we when we die, in my view, uh, well, in, in what I think is the biblical view, we stop living altogether. We don't, you know, sort of enter life in a, in a new stage or new form. Um, the only hope that we have for life after our bodies die is not the fact that we have a special part that's not subject to bodily death. It's my view that our only hope for future uh, of any kind after death is the fact that God is able to raise the dead mm. in, you know, in what we call the resurrection of the dead. So in a nutshell, that's what I think the Bible teaches. I see. Well, we're going to get into this a little bit uh, in greater depth in a moment. But, you know, you and I have talked about this briefly on, on Didi's blog, or maybe not so briefly. But, uh, you know, one of the things I've told you is that 
while I found many of your arguments very plausible, in fact, I've defended them. I mean, I, I've come to share your example of Second Corinthians 15, for example, or Second Corinthians 5, for example. One thing that has really troubled me about this idea is how seemingly little it's been held um, throughout church history. I, I tend to agree with uh, Dee Dee Warren, to bring her up again, when, when she says theological novelty isn't a good thing. Um, so I guess what I'm asking you is, is this, in fact, a theological novelty, or, or can you point to, to notable Christians in history who've shared your position? Yeah, I mean, it would be a concern for me if if absolutely no one had noticed that this was biblical before. I think, well, you, come on, I can't right. be the only one. Um, obviously, as an evangelical, I think the writers of Scripture have my view, but you know, Christians sure. of all persuasions think that the biblical writers held their view. I'm well aware that it is a minority view, although it's, it's I think, in our age, certainly a growing minority. But yes, there have been representatives of the view in history. Um, part of the problem in assessing the answer to this question, is that early Christian writers didn't set out to discuss philosophy of mind any more than the Bible did. They taught about the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, and anything we say from them, anything we draw from them, sorry, about philosophy of mind is going to be a possibly incorrect inference. For example, let's say, let's imagine that Christians for the first two centuries didn't say anything about philosophy of mind. Should we then infer that they were dualists? Well, of course I, I don't. That would be begging the question, obviously. So, but having said that, Christians who are physicalists have drawn support from a very early writers like Clement of Rome, uh, from Barnabas, and others from that period. Uh, it's widely acknowledged that among the church fathers, you've got Anobius of Sissa, who very clearly taught physicalism, and also annihilationism, just to make him really unpopular. Um, <laughs> um, prior to the Reformation, you have groups like the Waldensians. And, and incidentally, in naming these people, I'm not saying I agree with everything they said. Sure. <laughs> I'm just saying, look, look there are examples. Uh, the Baldangians had a reputation for denying the soul's immortality. Uh, and this is a really interesting example, as as even John Calvin admits in his institutes, even Pope John the Twenty Second, who died in the 14th century, uh, he was Pope during the schism in the Catholic Church. He was in, in, in Avignon in France. He maintained that the soul is mortal and perishes with the body till the day of resurrection, which is a very anti-Catholic view. Sure. Um, so, yeah, from the Reformation onwards as well, you've got all kinds of examples. William Tyndale notoriously taught that the soul dies with the body. Uh, in fact, I can't even detect dualism uh, in, in his teachings about life before death. Uh, John Locke was clearly a physicalist, and, and it's widely acknowledged that there have been numerous other examples since then. So, yes, while physicalism is a minority view, no responsible historian would deny that it has always been present in the Christian faith. I, I sometimes hear dualists say, look, you know, you've got one or two. Maybe you've got, I, I was looking, yeah, in, in preparation for this, this talk, um, I was looking just to see what people online have said. And someone said, yeah, you've got Arnobius, he was the first, and since then there was no one since after the Reformation. And I just thought, well, that's just lazy. You haven't even looked. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and bear this in mind, if you find one teacher holding a view, it's, it's obvious that there wasn't just one person at the time holding the view. You know, you've found a representative yeah. of, of probably a, a community of faith that held that view. So the view was, has been alive and well since the beginning, uh, albeit as a minority view. Yeah. Uh, quite yeah, I'm amazed. I, I had no idea that it was that. Um, it, it, granted, still a minority, but it, uh, I, I, like I would have probably said, I would have thought only one or two people would have taught it. But clearly, that's not the case. Um, no, not at all. Yeah. Would you be willing to send me um, some links that I could include in the show notes, particularly to the very early writers you mentioned, Clement of Rome? I mean, that's a first-century writer. I think um, these would be links that I would find very invaluable. Could you send me some links to those? Yep, I'll do some looking and put something together for you and, and send it your way. I appreciate that. Well, so 
like I said, it's really encouraging that it's, it isn't entirely absent at all from the historical record, but as we both acknowledge, it is a very, well, I don't want to say very small if that's using loaded language, but it is a minority within the church historically. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that's the case? What would you point to as the explanation for that? Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult to kind of dissect the motives of history and say, why were things this way? Um, I mean, this, uh, this holistic view, and that's how I see it as, as a holistic view of human nature, I think it has been at a real sociological and cultural disadvantage from the very beginning. Mm. I mean, the world into which Christianity came was full of competing philosophies. I mean, the Greek philosophers, the Persian philosophers, and various other African and Asian uh, points of view existed and were, you know, bustling about together in the first century. And the majority of them were thoroughly dualistic. So people, for better or worse, just as a matter of fact, are syncretistic. Mm. Um, you know, even, to, even today, there are parts of the world where Christianity is present, but it's combined with paganism, ancestor worship, local religion, and so on. Well, I mean, this phenomenon has always been there. And so when people in a culture where dualism was just normal became Christians, they tended to remain dualist because, you know, dualism versus non-dualism wasn't some essential part of the Christian message that they had to accept and change in order to become Christians. Sure. And so, you know, I'm a dualist now. Why wouldn't I be a dualist still now that I've adopted Christianity? And so they just did. I mean, first century Greco-Roman world was a very dualistic culture, much more so than today. Had Jesus come today, uh, I strongly suspect that we wouldn't be, need to be ha- having this conversation in 2,000 years' time. Because he'd answer uh, it because... for us? <laughs> Sorry? Because he'd answer it for us? I mean, Well, no, no, no. What I mean oh. is if Jesus had come for the first time today, mm. like if Jesus didn't come 2,000 years ago, he came now and the Christian faith was born in the modern period, uh, converts to Christianity wouldn't necessarily bring dualism with them because it's not part of our culture now. I see. And so they wouldn't have simply de facto adopted it or kept this dualistic point of view. And so 2,000 years from now, we wouldn't have to look back and say, so why why did the early Christians largely start, start out as dualists? Because they wouldn't have. Right. Yeah. So I, what I'm saying is I think dualism is part of the cultural baggage that Christianity has just accepted rather than part of the teachings of the Christian faith itself. You know, I could really buy that because um – you know, what happened beginning at, uh, what, Acts chapter 10, I mean, uh, Gentiles, um, well, that was God-fearers. But in Acts 19, you have non-God-fearing Gentiles begin to really start populating the church. And with the destruction of uh, Jerusalem in 70, it was very rapidly dominated by Gentiles. So I could totally see um, this dualistic, uh, by default view that people had just take over. So, I mean, I could really buy that. Yeah, and not just in the Gentile world. I mean, in, in what we call the intertestamental period, you know, the period prior to the first century within Judaism, it, Judaism had become extraordinarily uh, syncretistic. I mean, a whole bunch of different competing views of human nature existed within Judaism. I mean, you had the Sadducees who did not oh, believe yeah. in dualism, nor did they believe in the resurrection of the dead, so they were sad, you see. They had nothing at all. <laughs> um, and, and and among other portions of Judaism, you had the whole whole the whole spectrum from from very extra, very strong dualism and even reincarnation among some of them uh, right through to uh, very strong physicalism. So, I mean, Judaism had the resources to produce, you know, uh, dualistic offshoots as much as any Gentile point of view did. I see. Well, but still, the influx of Gentiles of the church couldn't have helped the situation. No, no. no. I mean, yeah. so, <laughs> it's, so, it's, so it's easily explainable why, you know, this would have taken off as a dualistic movement. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a stretch of the imagination. No, not at all. In fact, it would be unusual for this not to have taken place. Yeah, I would agree. 
Well, so I mentioned back when you and I were talking about this at Didi's blog, and, and one thing that really struck me was how, and, and this is just my opinion, um, you know, for those listening, if you were part of this, please don't take this as my, you know, me saying this was objectively the case, but it, it was definitely my opinion that you were treated really disrespectfully. Um, it was, it suggested at one point that you had some sort of, you know, dark hidden agenda or something. And, and then when I started to agree with you, not, not on physicalism as a whole, but your interpretation of certain passages, um, I, I felt that I was treated in the same way. And, and it was even asked of me if I had some sort of hidden agenda. Um, and then, you know, in response to your unbelievable radio show appearance, uh, one caller called in and said he didn't think that either you or the other person you were debating were Christians. And, yeah. and just in recent times, I had a, a Hebrew teacher separate from me in the biblical sense, from my perception, simply because I was on the fence regarding this view and had come to agree with your interpretation of one particular passage. So I, I guess what I'm asking is, has your experience likewise been that your view is received by many Christians with this kind of uh, deep-rooted anger and, and th- that manifests itself in disrespect? And, and if you do, uh, why do you think that that's the case? Uh, well, and, and just tangentially, it's I find it incredibly ironic that a Hebrew teacher of all people would do this because I think Hebrew, the Hebrew Scripture, more than anything else, is where you get the evidence for physicalism. But we'll come to that. <laughs> I have experienced this um, from some people, but not all. Mm. I mean, one shorthand way of stating the, the problem is that we're all sinners. And, Fair enough. And unfortunately, we're we're... You know, very centered on what we are and what we believe, and we tend to demonize those who aren't like us. Now, just to be clear, this was at a blog run by Dee Dee Warren, but she did not at all take part in the kind of behavior you're talking about. You're right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but certainly, yeah, some people did who read this. It happens elsewhere all the time. I'm treated by some Christians that way, but it's not just different theories, theories of philosophy of mind. It, there's nothing unique about this subject that, that prompts that reaction. Hmm. Um, for some Christians, and I've, I've experienced each and every one of the examples I, I, I use here, for some Christians, if you hold a different view of baptism, then you're not just wrong. You are an idolatrous covenant breaker. Mm. Now, if you don't hold their view on eschatological issues like the millennium, then you are a humanist. Um, if you don't hold the same view of biblical inerrancy, then you're a liberal, uh, possibly an unbeliever. If you don't share their view on on some incredibly precise distinction within Christology, then you're probably not saved. Now, as I said, I've encountered all of those. Mm. Um, it's just a fact that people, and evangelical Christians in particular, have struck me as being particularly blighted in this way. They're really partisan. And I think, and please forgive any offense that this causes that, and I have no particular explanation for why this is the case, but North American conservative evangelicalism is an animal all of its own. Mm. It's it's especially inclined this way. The exact contours of what you, not you, but the proverbial you as right. a Christian and your immediate homogenous insulated faith community believes is the be-all and end-all of the Christian faith. And there's this perceived duty to not just disagree with, but to utterly tear down and demolish everything and everyone that doesn't precisely conform to that in exact detail. As I said, it's it's very insular. It's generally ignorant of the wider Christian world, and most of all, it's closed off to the possibility of learning that you're wrong. Sure. <laughs> because you just won't, you won't even allow yourself to go there. Um, now, I know I'm generalizing, and there are so many exceptions to this, so many, fortunately, that it is still worth putting my view out there in the hope that those who are open-minded enough you know, to consider that maybe there's something they don't know yet, um, you know, that they will have the opportunity to consider it. And it's the kind of thing that I believe I could be wrong about. Hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm obviously I don't believe I am or I wouldn't believe this because that would be nonsensical, but, sure. you know, it's not so important to me that I can't ever imagine changing my mind. Right. 
Yeah, and, and I would agree with at least some of the things that you said about the conservative movement I'm a part of, but, uh, but yeah. I, I guess I, the question I would have, and this wasn't, you know, in the, sh- in the questions I prepared for you because I didn't know how you were going to answer this one, but, um, yeah. uh, where, where, look, I mean, the biblical writers did take a stance at some point, right? I mean, uh, you and I are familiar with, uh, Paul calling, uh, what, Philetus and, and, um, Hymen, Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus, yeah. Uh, uh, as spreading gangrene. So obviously the, the biblical authors did take a stance, the kind of stance that, you know, I think that conservatives in North America are at least trying to make. Yeah. Where, where yeah. would you, where is that, where should that, that line be drawn? Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I mean, when you take something like the resurrection of the dead and, and essentially deny it by saying it's not going to occur in the future and, and take away the hope that people have, you're essentially saying there is no reason to be a Christian. At least that's how I read the facts. Um, what's unfortunate is where people take absolutely everything they happen to believe and put them in that category. Like, everything I believe is absolutely vital to the Christian faith. Well, clearly it's not. That's ridiculous. Sure. Um, where you draw the line of what is and, and isn't is hard. Yeah. It's difficult, and and that's why I'm I'm really appreciative of the historic creeds, not you know Reformation era things like the uh, Helvetic Confession, which is absolutely enormous, or the <laughs> Westminster, Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, I'm I'm talking about things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. I mean, I I think they're fallible, but I happen to think they're correct. But what I really appreciate is that they show quite clearly that the early church didn't think you had to believe 125,000 different things sure. in order to in order to have an acceptable Christian theology. It was actually a really short list. It was a paragraph long. Yes. Uh, which, which tells me about what's important and what's not. There's not that much um, that is absolutely vital. And yet, you know, there are people who still manage to get those things wrong. But, but you know, the Christian faith is not an intellectual minefield. It's sure. relatively easily stated. Yeah, and I share that same appreciation of those early creeds, although I I will play the devil's advocate and just say I think that some might argue that the reason they were so short was because there was little to defend at the time. But, you know, they might claim that over time more and more uh, heresies developed that needed to be countered. I, I don't share that view. I agree with you. I think that the reason they were short is because there are essentials, and there are a few of them, um, but then there's liberty in the non-essentials. I think that that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and just, just in response to that devil you were advocating for, then, <laughs> um, <laughs> It's not true, for example, in the case of physicalism and dualism, that this, you know, if physicalism is an error, then it's certainly an error that was present at the time. Right. That's a good point. <laughs> and, you know, um, it was present prior to the Christian faith. It was present among Jews. It was present among Christians. And if they were heretics, the creed certainly didn't say so. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, I was going to bring that that up because what I want to say to my listeners is, and I say this because I think that there are some, you said on the Unbelievable program that Justin would be surprised, uh, by the number of people that would divide over this issue. I don't see mm. anything, like you said, I don't see anything in the creeds that would suggest that the church considered a belief in an immaterial soul to be an essential of the faith uh, or anything like that. So the, the question I want to ask you before we, um, really delve into this is, to hopefully to assuage some of my listeners' concerns as far as your orthodoxy is concerned, would you affirm what I think most would call the essentials of the faith? Would you agree with the Trinity, at least as historically defined, and the future return of Christ and the future bodily resurrection of the dead and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, all those things? Yeah, definitely. Uh, although, it's, I mean, I do, I do believe those things, but it's interesting because if I was a Catholic, I wouldn't be sitting here saying, yes, yet I would still consider myself an Orthodox Christian because, you know, the whole faith alone, Christ alone thing. But sure, that's a good point. It, it, it's, it's funny that sometimes when people who are disagreeing with me on philosophy of mind are far less Orthodox than I am in historical terms. I mean, I, 
I've had clashes over this issue with people who identify as what they call full preterist. I call them hyper preterist, but you know, people who deny the who deny the future resurrection of the dead. Well, uh, yeah, in terms of historic Christianity, I'm much much safer than they are. Yeah, because the creeds have nothing to say about philosophy of mind, but they do clearly have something to say about about the future resurrection. But yeah, I mean, I consider myself to be, uh, you know, in general terms, an orthodox conservative evangelical Christian who accepts the Trinity the authority of Scripture, you know, the justification by faith, and so on and so forth. Good. Well, hopefully that, you know, <laughs> hopefully that removes some obstacles to some listeners who might be uh, uh, tearing at their, you know, um, uh, biting at their tongues right now, listening to what you're saying. Uh, it's very clear oh, to me that... Oh, oh, no, you see, because this means that now I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Sure. Well, I'll be sure to, uh, you know, whack you with my shepherd's stick if I think that you get <laughs> yeah. too far. Yeah. Well, let's sort of buckle up then and, and, and dive into this. And, and I, I want to say to my listeners, we're, you're going to come back for a second episode to get into what I think is the real important issue, which is um, the, the what, what we would point to as biblical objections to your view. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm sorry, listeners, if you expect that in this episode, you're going to have to come back in a few weeks. But um, what I want to do is first let you start by giving a positive biblical case for your position and... Um, and then what we'll do, since we don't have a lot of time, is we'll look at the metaphysical objection to your view. Um, so, yeah, why don't you start with what you think is the positive case for your position? Okay, well, I'll try to be succinct. succinct. So, basically, here is what, as far as the Bible concerned, persuaded me to adopt physicalism. Okay. The first thing that struck me is that the number of texts that is supposed to imply dualism is surprisingly small, even if dualism is true, and even if all those texts do imply dualism, it's surprisingly small. I think there are five, maybe six decent examples in the whole Bible. That's actually what I pointed what? out in uh, episode, the very first episode of my podcast, actually. Mm. Mm. And what's more, I think that those texts are subject to plausible interpretations that don't involve dualism. But those those will wait, because those are really biblical objections to my point of view, yeah. and I think I can respond to them. And you want a positive case. But... Just the point is, I became aware that the biblical case for dualism was much smaller than you would think, given the confidence that some Christian dualists have. All by itself, I think that's enough for me to say, okay, I have no reason to accept dualism. I could just say, well, I'll, then I'll leave the issue alone and won't adopt it. Um, you know, so I lacked a po- positive biblical basis for the belief. Next, I found that the biblical terminology that I once thought, and I think most people just assume for cultural reasons, uh, should be interpreted in dualistic terms. Actually, the terminology wasn't intended by the authors to be understood that way. Hmm. This is the thing that really got me on the slippery slope. So let me give you some examples. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in particular, use the King James Version. Um, I think a number of errors are born out of old translations where obscure terminology is used that can be explained any way you see fit. True. And I think I think that's the case here. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, in the King James Version, uh, the writer says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. That's the King James Version. Hmm. Uh, the word for soul, or the phrase for soul there is nefesh chayah, or nefesh is the word translated soul. Uh, in modern translations, it's living creature, which I think is perfectly adequate. It's, it conveys the right idea. And so you have this idea that there is this physical thing put together, and this physical thing is called a living soul. But what now strikes me looking back is that that phrase, or the I think the phrase, but certainly the word nefesh, actually appears numerous times, or at least a couple of times, in Genesis chapter 1. But the word soul is never used. And that's because the word nefesh is used to describe non-human animals. 
in Genesis chapter 1. But for some reason, they thought it was important to use different English translations. So nephesh, when it applies to animals, well, they're just animals. But when it applies to humans, well, that's a soul. (laughs) Now, I think... I think that's a theological choice, not an exegetical one. Yeah. You know, they're fighting, yeah, it's because of their doctrinal presuppositions that they do that. Um, but throughout the Old Testament and the New, um, the word nephesh in, in Hebrew or the word suke in Greek, um, is used in a very material, earthly, physiological way. Uh, it's used to refer to animals. It's used to refer to just people in general. Like when the psalmist repeatedly uses the phrase, my soul or his soul or your soul, it's basically a personal pronoun. It means me, you, they, them. Um, in the Exodus, uh, we, we read that X number of souls in all were taken out. Well, that just, that means people and it includes animals. Yeah. Um, and we would often, we, I think to, we today would use that language sometimes. Yeah, there wasn't a soul in sight, you know? There you go. Um, uh, interestingly, in the book of Numbers, when it comes to purity laws, when someone touches a dead body and so they were deemed unclean, the word dead body there is nephesh muth, which means dead soul. Hmm. So the soul is still lying there on the ground. It hasn't gone anywhere. Um, you find a similar phenomenon with the word spirit. Not that spirit refers to something that's made of meat like the word soul does, but you, f- you find that it doesn't tend to refer to the kind of personal incorp- incorporeal thing that survives death. Um, and there's a couple of different words that translate the word spirit, mostly neshama, which is in Genesis 2.7, and also the word ruach, which is often used for the spirit of God. Mm. Uh, but as far as human beings is concerned, well, it refers to the breath of life. Often it refers simply to the mind. You know, and without presupposing anything about the mind, you can't say that that goes one way or the other in the physicalism-dualism debate. It just says, you know, in my heart or in my mind or in my spirit, it's used as a phrase like that. But there are some instances that I find very interesting. Uh, for example, uh, Job 27.3, where he's using essentially a parallelism, and he says, all the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. Huh. <laughs> Wait a minute, huh. what's he getting at there? Well, it's, it's two ways of saying the same thing. He's talking about the sustaining power of God that keeps us alive. Hmm. It's not a ghost. Now, I, I admit, as anyone does, that language is flexible and can be used in a whole variety of ways. And so when ancient people talked about ghosts, they did use the word spirit. But my point is, that's not how the Bible uses it. Mm. Um, what's really interesting is, well, I find it interesting, but then I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to such things. Uh, <laughs> if you look at look at Genesis 2-7, you know, God puts together dust and the breath of life, also translated spirit elsewhere, and it forms a man. And then you look at Ecclesiastes 12-7. Now, Ecclesiastes 12-7 is saying basically, uh, well, in, in, in wider context, in wider context, he's saying, look, enjoy life because the time is coming when you're going to die. And in verse 7, it describes what happens at death. It says, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. Well, that's, and some people have, I think, quite perversely taken that and says, see, look, it's telling us that life will continue after death and you'll go to heaven. No, <laughs> not if you understand the way this terminology is used in Scripture. What happened in Genesis 2-7 is that first there was no man, and then these two parts were put together, and then there was a man. Well, in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, he's saying, look, things are going to go back to the way they were. Mm. The dust will return where it was, and the breath of life or the spirit will return where it came from. Well, well what existed before you were created? Nothing. Right. <laughs> What's going to exist afterwards? Nothing. <laughs> it's not a continuation. It's an undoing and an end. Um, so that's the first line of reasoning, the way that the Bible talks about 
bodies and souls mm. and spirits. You know, just that, that, that terminology doesn't favor dualism. It very heavily favors physicalism. Secondly, uh, well, no, actually, I guess it's part of the first point too. Just the way that the biblical writers contrasted man and God. Now, you can co- contrast man and God in all kinds of ways because there are so many differences and similarities. But the Bible often refers to, to man in distinction from God by saying, you know, God is spirit. We are flesh. Hmm. All flesh is as grass. Um, you know, the whole flesh-spirit distinction there. Uh, well, that distinction wouldn't really be a meaningful one to make if, in fact, we were spirit as well, just not as great as God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think it's really, I mean, for example, think of uh, the psalmist where he says, you know, God is merciful to us because he remembers that we are just flesh, a wind that passes away, or Isaiah I know you say Isaiah up there, but we say Isaiah. (laughs) (laughs) Isaiah, I think it's chapter 2, tells us, stop trusting in man who has just a breath in his nostrils. That's all we are. Mm. All we are is dust in the wind. (laughs) Uh, Genesis 3, God says to Adam, you are dust, and to dust you will return. So that's that's the first point. The biblical terminology, uh, when it comes to what we are, Mm. favors physicalism. Secondly, uh, I would appeal to the biblical language of sleep. And I understand you have a question to ask about this later, but but just on, on the face of it, I think the biblical language of sleep doesn't favor the idea that we actually survive death consciously and spirit form and go somewhere else. Um, for example, look at Acts chapter 13, where he's talking about the fact that the psalmist had David in mind when it when it prophesied. Oh, sorry, had Jesus in mind, the Christ, and not David. Ultimately, anyway, um, Acts 13 says, "For David." after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. But he, that is Jesus, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. And the idea is that David fell asleep and, well, rotted, saw corruption. But Jesus did not. So, now we know that Jesus himself rose again, whereas David didn't. See, the idea is that David himself is now sleeping and has rotted, but Jesus is alive. And I think that's consistent with passages like Daniel 12.2, which refers to all those who are dead as sleeping in the dust of the earth. Oh. That's where they are now. They're in the ground sleeping. Thirdly, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Um, now, I know that most dualists who call themselves Christians do accept the bodily resurrection of the dead. There are very few exceptions, and you'll know some of those, you know, those who I was talking about earlier, the, the so-called full preterists. Mm-hmm. But... But just have a look, and I know you and I have discussed this before, at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is, well, it's not exactly clear what he's addressing, but at very least he is addressing skepticism about the resurrection of the dead because he says, look, how come some of you are saying that there's no resurrection of the dead? Right. And then, and then he invests all this, all this intellectual energy in answering that because it's you know, obviously a really important pastoral question. And he gives a couple of, well, maybe he gives more than two, but he gives at least two arguments for why people should change their minds. He says, first of all, if there's no resurrection of the dead at all, as you say, then then that would mean that Jesus hasn't risen. And if Jesus hasn't risen, then you're not forgiven, sin is not atoned, and you're still lost. And what do you think of that? You know, that's obviously a really bad thing. Right. And then he, he gives a couple of personal anecdotes after that and makes a few, or various sorts of comments. But then a couple of paragraphs later, he picks up, a separate argument, and this argument I think is really important for, for my purposes anyway. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then I was just, it was in vain. I was wasting my time risking my life, fighting wild animals in Ephesus and, and so on and so forth. 
He says, because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then I may as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that's that. That's the end. Mm. But he's actually presupposing, he doesn't say it, but he's presupposing something there. He's saying, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then there is no way to survive death. There's nothing, because he actually said, you know, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then the only hope we have is in this life, which presupposes that the resurrection of the dead is the only way to have life after death. Because if you are still guaranteed of survival after death, even without a body, then there would be an obvious response to Paul. They'd say, well, no, no, we we shouldn't eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, because we're still going to live on in heaven, so we still have to be careful how we live now. Whereas Paul is saying, no, if there's no no, no resurrection, no bodily resurrection, then there's nothing after death. And I think that is an an underappreciated argument. It's actually very powerful, because it shows that unless Paul is a physicalist, He's talking nonsense. Hmm. Um, so I think that there are at least three good biblical reasons for claiming uh, that that physicalism is likely the view held by the biblical writers. So we've got the the fact that Scripture presents a view of man that is very holistic. We're formed from the natural elements of the earth and we're sustained by the Spirit of God. Uh, secondly, Scripture presents death in terms of sleep and unconsciousness until we are resurrected from the dust. And thirdly, the New Testament in particular reveals that we have no future at all unless there is a resurrection of the dead, which means that the idea of of post-mortem survival of the disembodied soul is is just not true, or at least not held by the biblical writers. I see. Yeah, you know, I I would agree. I think I find these, well, I don't agree with your position necessarily, but I do agree with the the weight of these arguments. But, But let me tell you how I would have answered a couple of these, and you obviously have my uh, questions beforehand, so you'll probably have a response. But, I mean, let, let me start with the most recent one you mentioned, the First uh, Corinthians 15 passage. Um, I, I thought about this as I was preparing to interview you. I would agree. He says there is, if, if there's, there's only hope in this life if there's no resurrection, and therefore we might as well eat, drink, and be, be merry. And you said something interesting. You said that somebody could uh, respond to that by saying, well, no, there's, there's heaven that we're going to go to, and so we should be careful what we do. But here's the thing. His argu- I, I think you and I would agree that at least in the first argument that he makes concerning uh, if there is no resurrection, then Christ didn't rise. His point, at least there, is that if Christ didn't rise, then we, sin has not been atoned for. But if right. that's but if that's the case, then it, then there is there isn't heaven after death. We may survive it in the sense that we uh, continue to be conscious after death, but. It doesn't really matter. I mean, we we could be heaping judgment upon us, sure, but no matter how good we live after this point, we would still um, we would still be in hell, or we would cease to exist, as an annihilationist might put it. Sure. So, sure. if you don't think that this is a plausible understanding of Paul's words, or at least as plausible as yours, why why not? Well, I agree that it's plausible, but I think that he's actually using two arguments that that stand will fall independently. Hmm. And I think even if he hadn't made the first argument, the first one would still hold. And I think he intends that as well. He doesn't seem to be doing it as some sort of, um, here's the first premise in the argument. Um, you know, uh, if Christ didn't rise, then there's something lacking in our redemption. And my second premise in the argument is that let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, and so on. Therefore, you have to believe in the resurrection. I think his point is that either one of these is a good enough reason to believe in the resurrection. I see. Now you might not you might not share that view, but if you could become persuaded of that, then you would see the point that I'm, then you would see. Okay, you've got a point there. There are two two reasons to believe in the resurrection. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't say you persuaded me to be convinced of it, but uh, I I find it very um, 
I find it challenging. Let's just put it that way. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to change overnight, but um, this is for my benefit if nobody else's. Um, the other, so the other thing I wanted to uh, address was this issue of sleep. You know, I, I think I. I think I agree with the weight of the um, dust arguments and the breath of life arguments and all that. But as far as sleep is concerned, the, what I would have argued before is that sleep was an analogy um, because from our perspective, it seems like sleep to us who are living. Um, and, and I argued before that someone who is actually sleeping is still alive and is in some sense conscience, uh, conscious and yeah. that he can dream and such. So do you, don't, do you not think that these adequately answered this particular argument? I don't find them very persuasive comebacks. I mean, there are two ways to go with this. The first one is to say, look, if sleep were the only evidence we had, then that might be a reasonable comeback. But the fact that the same scriptures that speak of sleep also speak of us being made of dust and of us just having the breath of life, that encourages us to read the text about sleep in a certain way. That's one way to go. And I think it's not bad, but I think there's another way too. Obviously, when the Bible says that a person is asleep, it's not literally true. You know, it is an analogy or metaphor, call it what you will, but it's not actually the case. Sure. You're right. When, when a person is literally asleep, they are still alive, but people who are dead aren't actually asleep. You know, right. in reality, uh, when someone is sleeping, the thing that is still alive is the same thing that is sleeping. Now, even for a dualist, they'd have to say that when you're dead, it's the body that is metaphorically sleeping. Right. right. You have to, you have to say that Really, given the biblical language, I mean, look at the, the book of Daniel. It says, uh, it talks about those who sleep in the dust of the earth, for example. But no dualist thinks that the body is still alive. And yet that's the thing that is sleeping. So in biblical terms, the thing that sleeps is not alive in any sense at all. It's in the dust of the earth. And yet the Bible also says elsewhere that it is the person who sleeps. Yeah. So we, when people die, the Bible says he fell asleep. Now, if you put all that together piece by piece, when you die, you fall asleep. The thing that is sleeping, even according to the dualist, in the dust of the earth uh, is the body. And yet the Bible says that the thing that falls asleep and dies, that dies and falls asleep is you. When you put all that together, I don't think you can appeal to the analogy and try and press it literally, saying that, well, since people who actually sleep are still alive, then then, then those who sleep in death must also be still alive. I, I don't think it, you can press it that literally at all. Hmm. Yeah, and I think you make a good point that, for some reason struck me this time around more than the last time you made it, which is that um, I don't say my body is sleeping when I'm in my bed. I say I am asleep. And in the same way, the biblical authors say you sleep or they sleep. They don't say their body was sleeping. So, I mean, I think that's a good point. Uh, again, not necessarily convinced, but more convinced than I have been in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to get to some biblical objections in the next episode as I, or in a future episode, as I said, but, um, mm-hmm. But what I want to raise, what I, the only objection I want to raise at this point is one that, quite frankly, I don't know if I can do justice to, but I'm going to give it my best shot, um, which is the metaphysical or um, philosophical objection, which is which is this, at least as I understand it. Um, basically, I think the question is, how can the material processes of the brain produce or, or comprehend immaterial, abstract things, things like ideas, thoughts, memories, uh, or, or feelings like love and grace and mercy. One might argue that having an immaterial spirit or soul can account for these kinds of immaterial, abstract thoughts and feelings, but 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 that solely material processes could not. What, what do you make of yeah. this? Um, it's it's an interesting. I mean, it's an argument that is worthy of attention. And in the, in the philosophical literature, this is called the argument from what's called qualia. A qualia is the phenomenon of being conscious and having experiences, uh, which I think is basically what you're getting at. Hmm. Uh, um, I think.
think that whoever wants to make that kind of argument has a pretty unenviable burden of proof. The argument essentially is that, well, I think the argument that you've just given is that physicalism can't give any kind of explanatory account of this phenomenon of experience or consciousness or you know, having memories or thoughts or love or, or what have you. My reply is, well, okay, so what's the, what's the explanatory account offered by dualism? Hmm. I don't think there is one. I don't even think dualists believe that there is one. If someone tells me that physicalism can't explain this, but dualism can, then I want to know how dualism explains it. True. Uh, now, if, if I'm right and physicalism is true, then it follows that there is a very close relationship of some sort. Um, I'm undecided about exactly what sort because there are varieties available, but there is a very close relationship of some sort between brain and mind. Now, if that's true, well, we happen to know that brains are unbelievably complicated. I mean, really complex things. One of the most, one of the most complex things we've ever encountered. Um, but that means that if the mind is dependent on the brain, then any explanation of how consciousness comes about as a result of the brain is also going to be unbelievably complicated. Uh, I don't believe I can do justice to it because I don't know as much as God does about brains and how mm. they work. And I, I think, and, and not that you are seeking this, but the type of soundbite explanation that some dualists hope for in debate on this subject it's just not realistic. You know, it's like saying, explain to me in five seconds why evolution is false. Well, I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and I, I, I agree with you. I don't see the dualistic view as, as really having any explanatory power. I mean, I, I would say to somebody, uh, how, explain for me how an immaterial uh, soul can interact with the physical or material body such that it can control it. You know, um, I, I, I don't think there's any explanatory power there. I would agree yeah. with you. And so... And let me be clear too, I don't, I wouldn't say that because dualism can't give an account of qualia, that counts against dualism. Sure. Because qualia exists, we experience it, and something accounts for it, but the explanation's really hard, whatever, whatever it is. Um, you know, I don't, I, you know, a non-material god created a material universe, so somehow something non-material uh, had, had a material effect. Now, I don't fault theism because of that, I, I believe it. Um, but what that means is that the, uh, the dualist has to show a bit of grace in return. They can't then turn around and, and demand that we meet a standard that they don't meet. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, what, what I think that I'll do, because I, I doubt that this answer will satisfy many of my listeners, but I do think that you at least touch on this in a greater level of detail than we can in this uh, episode. I, I think that you touch on it more deeply in your uh, series In Search of the Soul uh, in your podcast. Right. And so I- I'm going to include links to, in my show notes to that because I think that, you know, I, w- I was hoping you might touch on, um, uh, you know, em- emergence and, and um, I-, I think that y- there was even, uh, t- speaking of will, speaking of the ability to have will, um, you-, you mentioned in that series that there is an explanation of how material processes can, uh, can produce um, – a consciousness that is able to, in return, influence those material processes, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. the position is called non-reductive physicalism, and it's the idea that the products of physical processes aren't, I mean, yeah, the mind, and, and, and I'm, I'm stammering not because I'm confused, but because it's it's a hard choice of what to appeal <laughs> to, because we've got such, I mean, it's not that, as John Haldane said in a recent discussion, it's not that I have nothing to say, it's just there's too much to say, yeah. <laughs> so you have to select what it is you say. Um, there is, um, I'll call it plausible just because it's at least a very serious one worthy of being taken seriously, um, a plausible account whereby 
the mind, even produced by a physical system, is capable of exerting constraints upon that physical system itself in such a way that the actions that, that are present in the mind are not merely the product of the laws of physics. Right. Now, I understand that it is extraordinarily complex, and some people may feel that my saying so is a cop-out. Maybe it is, but I'm not a neuroscientist. <laughs> and, and and for that matter, nor are they. And and you know, duelists who raise this challenge, I find, are usually not, with all due respect to them, are usually not in a position, as far as neuroscience goes, to say, look, I know that there is no possible account for this. That if there is, you shouldn't expect it to be an easy one to find. Sure. Yeah, I would agree. And and you know, the one last thing that I'll say is just that, um, you know, I, I I'm I'm a Calvinist, uh, and when people object to my view, I find that it's almost entirely on philosophical grounds and not biblical ones. And what I'll, what I'll tell people after I go through great lengths to demonstrate, and if you're not a Calvinist, that's okay. I, I, I don't want to argue about that, but, um, it's fine. okay. But, um, but, but usually after going through great lengths to demonstrate to them, I think the biblical case, I'll, I'll point out, now look, I've got, um, You've got a theological problem, a biblical problem, um, whereas I have a philosophical problem. I will always choose to have a, physical, uh, a philosophical problem over a biblical one. And in the same way here, uh, in this case, as, as regards physicalism, if it can be shown from, if the Bible can be uh, demonstrated to teach this, I, I really don't care if I can't understand how philosophically it all works. You know what I'm saying? That's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, whether I'm, I'm an Arminian or a Calvinist or an open theist, if I hear someone exposed to an exegetical case for Calvinism and then they say, but that would just make us all puppets, I say, what, are you saying that you grant the strength of the ex- exegetical case but you aren't happy with the idea of being a puppet? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, because they have to deal with it the right way around. They can't, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> we agree. Yeah, and, and that's why I look forward to the next episode that we where we talk about the biblical objections. And, um, you know, the reason I saved them all for a second episode is because I think there – I mean, you're right. There are five or six passages, but there are more than that that maybe have not – that may be a little weaker. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, but before I let you go, do you want to leave my listeners with a parting message of any sort, anything you would like them to consider between now and your next appearance? Yeah, I mean, you indicated that you'd asked me this question. I thought, gosh, what can I give them to take away – I guess there are a couple of things to do. One, open your Bibles. Right. I'm suggesting they don't do that. But open your Bibles and make a list. Because for me, the issue was kicked off by my views of the afterlife. And only then did I really turn to questions of philosophy of mind from a biblical point of view, before I even heard of philosophy of mind as an academic discipline in itself. Open your Bibles and list as many verses as you can that explicitly, I don't mean according to you and after you've figured out what it's probably referring to, <laughs> list, all, list all the verses that explicitly state that after death you go to heaven. Hmm. You will be shocked because I know, just saying this now, you will come up with a figure of zero. That's true. Now, whether or not dualism is true, that's a fact. You're going to come up with that. Uh, so I, I guess the thing I'm saying is start looking for the things that you think should be obvious if your view of, of, of philosophy of mind and the afterlife is true. And start looking for those things in Scripture. You may surprise yourself. And the other thing I would suggest is start pretending that physicalism is true, even if you don't think it is. Start saying, for example, of any given state of affairs, okay, this is how I currently think as a dualist. How would I think about it as a physicalist? I think what you'll start to realize is that the explanatory power of physicalism makes an uncomfortable amount of sense to a dualist. Hmm. So start thinking like a dualist and start seeing... If there is some parsimony there, you know, if everything, if everything 
fits together and makes sense from a dualistic point of view. Uh, it may be awkward, um, but I think you'll start to see that physicalism as an outlook starts to make more sense. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree. And, 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 you know, I get part of the reason I put that question in there was also because the message I would like to leave my listeners with between now and next episode is that, um, th- this isn't, this isn't just something that some cult believes and 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 you know i think mike felker in episode nine of my podcast said that this is something that jehovah's witnesses share now, i don't know if that's true or not but i definitely get the impression that this is not treated with a level of um careful consideration that i think it really ought to uh, and furthermore like i like i said a, a few questions ago this really shouldn't be something we should divide over you know i i would hope that anybody listening to you right now would would get the impression that you were not some um you know crazy liberal who's who's denying the, the the authority of scripture and so on and so forth so that's that's what i personally would like to my my listeners with whether they come to agree with you or not i don't see why i see literally no reason why they should divide from you as brothers you know yeah i mean as far as i know for example jehovah's witnesses are young earth creationists does that mean we should start you know saying that jehovah's witness doctrine also known as young earth creationism <laughs> exactly right yeah and, we, don't, we don't think that way in other times so let's not do it here yeah i would agree all right, well, so how can my listeners get uh, plugged into your blog and podcast and get in touch with you? Uh, well, if if you're after the podcast, you can find it in the iTunes store. Search for Glenn Peoples, uh, Glenn with two N's, as the author, or search for the title, Say Hello to My Little Friend. The other way is at my website, www.beretta-online.com. Uh, the reason it's called that is I had a, a website called Beretta before I ever had a podcast, so that's where it's hosted. Hmm. Um, yeah, so if you want to find it, that's where it is. Great. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today. I look forward to your next appearance. I look forward to that too, Chris. I hope you enjoyed the interview, even if you vehemently disagree with Glenn's point of view. And also, I apologize if you don't think I did a good enough job of challenging his perspective, but rest assured, Glenn will be back in a week or so to spend the full hour on biblical challenges to his position, and I bet he'd be willing to address a philosophical objection or two as well, so... If you think you have some scripture which serves as powerful evidence against physicalism, email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com and I'll compile a list and challenge Glenn on them one by one, uh, leaving nothing out if possible. So, until then, I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Podcast.